Hi, I'm Monse, and this is Musings of the Artist, a podcast where I have meaningful conversations with all kinds of artists. Ama Kojo is a poet based in New York City. She is the author of Bluest Nude and Blood of the Air. Her poems and essays have been published in many outlets, and her work has twice appeared in the best American poetry. Her poems often engage with visual art, especially art by Black women artists. This conversation is much about the body, on how we relate to nudity and nakedness, on being in the body as an artist, and on living a fully sensual life. Ama shares about her writing process and acrostic poetry, and we also talk about the many ways we love outside of the mainstream definition of that word, love. As we are moving into a new year, I'm thinking about how Ama's book, Bluest Nude, and this conversation I had with her has been one of the greatest gifts to my life this past year. I hope that if you don't already know her work, but discovering it now might bring about this same opening in you. I'm so excited to share this conversation with Ama Kojo. So here it is. Okay, here we go. <laughs> well, Ama, I, I was just mentioning before I hit record the record button how much I have been looking forward to this conversation. I savored your book of poems so, so much and will continue to come back to it. But also, I would say I wanted to mention that, you know, in reading your interviews, I feel such a sort of kinship to the way that you see the world. It just really resonates deeply. So, yeah, I have about like seven pages of typed up notes, and I'm going to try to distill that into a couple questions. <laughs> um, but as you can tell, I'm very excited about this. <laughs> well, let me say, I, I mean... I don't feel like I've heard a lot of conversation about how beautiful it, it is to have just like one thoughtful reader. And just to know that you've like, you've read the work and you've spent time with it. It truly is like, a, it feels like a miraculous, like a tiny miracle. And it's really uh, been beautiful to be on this side of like, this exchange that has been so meaningful in terms of me being a reader. So yeah, just to be able to have a conversation with somebody who's like spent time with the poems feels very lucky and good. Mm. Well, I just want everybody to go spend that same time with your work. And I, I, it feels like such a gift. So thank you for all you do. I usually start these conversations with this sort of big question and I know you said you listened to some of them, so you might already know what this is. But I, I wanted to start with, you know, just pointing to the fact that you are a magnificent poet and writer, and, which is the same thing. I also don't know why we separate that so often. Say poet, writer, it's, poets are writers. But anyways, right. <laughs> I digress. <Yeah>. You're <laughs> a poet and a dancer. Um, but how would you begin to describe yourself beyond those descriptions that are so often attached to your name? Yeah, I have I have heard this question and I didn't prepare an answer but I think <laughs> what I what I what I thought about when I heard you asking other people was just um well maybe this this idea that is in um Ross Gay's Inciting Joy mm, yes. which is definitely one of my favorite books that I've read as of late 
Um, and he's talking about how he thinks and defines joy as like what emanates from how the way that we carry our sorrows together. And for me, like at the kind of essence of like who and what I am is just this longing for connection and, and exchange. I, th- I think it's kind of inescapable as a human being to not feel the compulsion and urgency for connection and intimacy. And so I'm the person that wants that and I'm the person that hopes to offer that. That's so palpable through your work. And um, it's something I actually I do want to talk about more with you later. <laughs> Thank you for mm-hmm. that beautiful answer. I thought I would start by um, talking about your gorgeous poem, um, which is towards the front of the collection, which is Unseen and Being Seen. And in this poem, in addition to the speaker, there is the lover whose presence, as well as Sontag and Elizabeth Bishop's words. But it also feels very much like the speaker of the poem is seeing her own body. And there's a line, tonight I am alone in my tenderness. And this poem and much of your work, you know, makes me think a lot about something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is this private sensuality that each of us holds, maybe especially as women, you know. And I just wanted to hear you speak more about this, about this sort of this um, this private longing or sensuality that we we can hold that can be apart from the other. Mm, yeah. It just... I I think there's something about how maybe it's like we're always alone and we're always never alone. Like it is both of those things. You can't really ever know another person. Like someone is in some ways always alien. Like someone other than yourself is always alien to you, but also we are each other. And I guess that expresses itself in our sexuality and in kind of the private chambers of our lives. So that when the speaker is by herself, she's also conjuring memory. There's like, yeah, there's the absence and the presence at the same time. And I think the same is true for when we are in our most kind of intimate encounters with people that it's not just us that it's, it's like everyone. It's like all the, all the kind of ghosts of uh, other people that we've loved or other people that we've longed for. Um, There's so much that is both peopled and kind of spare. And yeah, I think the poem is kind of moving between those things. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. I also just think a lot about um, sort of, I think we talk about sort of sensuality a lot in relation just to sexuality and sort of um, something that we experience with, with another, right? But how often, like, what about the times that we're, you know, not with someone, but there's so many ways to feel sensual, you know, in the body? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know why, but it's been a 
preoccupation of mine. I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been trying to write into it. So it's very, yeah. it just feels very present in your book. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there is something. I've actually, I've just been thinking a lot about the word or the words sensory and sensual and what, I don't have an answer, but what is the distinction between those two? Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. the sensual is so much about like, about the senses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just about touch. There's like there's texture, but there's also smell and there's looking. And I, I just think, yeah, there's taste. There's so much that I do think, um, part of my longing as a human being or as a creature is about wanting a sensual life. Yeah. And that you're, that what you're saying, you know, that it's not just, that's not just about sex. It's not just about, you know, sexual intimacy. That's, about like for me like seeing this like really beautiful yellow leaves like on the walk to the train you know and like really like stopping (laughs) and and like looking and like wow especially when it's a cloudy day how the the kind of the brightness comes in a different way so I guess yeah I mean I feel like that is part of being an artist it's like Mm -hmm. living a sensual life and I was in Tunisia um, maybe a few months ago and I went to the Sahara and (laughs) it was funny because uh, the person that was with me driving um, to the desert was like, well, what do you want to actually do? (laughs) And had all these kind of options. And I was like, I actually just would like to be in the dunes and like look up at the night sky, like just like full of stars. Yeah. Oh. That was like my, my, my aim, <laughs> which, yeah. which I got to do. And it was, you know, breathtakingly beautiful and really quiet and gorgeous. And I thought like, oh, I think if we could see this, like we would be more in tuned with ourselves and kinder to each other. If, if we could see this, you know, every night Yeah, and it wasn't kind of um, made murky by, what our urban lives and cities and industry have made of the night sky. I think that's true for everything. You know, I think there's just so much that we could take in that would really nourish us and maybe keep us a bit more peaceful. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so true. And it's, you know, it makes me think too about how left turn a little bit, but I was thinking about how I, I've, I've sort of, I've been taking this little break from being on social media mm-hmm. and how much more present and alive I feel, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh yeah, this is what life is supposed to be. Not this distraction of all these, you know, fake lives. <laughs> no, that doesn't feel like a left turn at all. I think, I think the presence is a part of, you know, the kind of beholding that we're talking about. Yeah. I thought I, w- I want to talk about some of your other poems. But before we do, would you mind reading this magnificent poem on seeing and being seen? I would be happy to. Thank you. On seeing and being seen. I don't like being photographed. When we kissed at a wedding, the night grew long and luminous. You unhooked my bra. A photograph passes for proof, Sontag says, that a given thing has happened. 
or you leaned back to watch as I eased the straps from my shoulders, hooks, and eyes. Right now, my breasts are too tender to be touched. Their breasts were horrifying, Elizabeth Bishop writes. Tell her someone wanted to touch them. I am touching the photograph of my last seduction. It is as slick as a magazine page, as dark as a street darkened by rain. When I want to remember something beautiful, instead of taking a photograph, I close my eyes. I watched as you covered my nipple with your mouth. Desire made you beautiful. I closed my eyes. Tonight, I am alone in my tenderness. There is nothing in my hand except a certain grasping. In my mind's eye, I am stroking your hair with damp fingertips. This is exactly how it happened. On the lit up hotel bed, I remember thinking, my body is a lens I can look through with my mind. Oh, thank you, Ama. It's, it's really, it's, I read that poem over and over again, but it's really something to hear you read it. It's so beautiful. I wanted to talk a bit somewhat related to what we were just talking about, about but about nudity specifically, which is so present in, in this work as well. There's two poems specifically, The Two Girls Bathing, where, which I love, it's um, a poem in which the speaker's cousin, of the speaker's cousin, you write, I watch how easily she bears her supple body. She wears her nakedness like it's been woven from air. You know, which is pointing to the difference in the way the cousin in the poem relates to her nakedness versus the speaker. And in the end of the poem, uh, you write, not knowing when and from whom I learned to be ashamed. Sort of similarly, on, in Heaven as Olympic Spa, it's a poem written about a Korea, or being in a Korean spa where you, you have to be nude or everyone's nude around you. And there's a line in the poem, in that poem that says, because I was not alone, my nakedness felt unremarkable. And I'm eager to talk to you about this because another thing I've been really thinking about um, these last few years, I think, is sort of the way we relate to our nakedness and the cultural upbringings, you know, that, that inform that perhaps. I personally grew up with a Spanish mother and an Argentine stepmom. And nudity was so, so much the norm, you know, in the house. And it was celebrated and just like nothing, wasn't something that was like pointed to as, oh, that's strange. It was just so much a part of our, my upbringing. And living between, I was living in Spain as a young girl and then the U.S., but it was such a stark difference between my experience with my, with nudity, you know, in Spain versus here. And so I've been thinking about it a lot these days and like why that is, you know, because even today when I'm around, you know, if I'm changing in a locker room or, you know, in my room and a roommate walks by, my immediate sort of reaction is to, or or instinct is to, to cover my breast, you know, because not because it's something I feel like I need to, do for myself, but for the other person to make them like feel comfortable. But of course I would not do that if I was in Spain with my friends, you know? And so I've been thinking a lot about this and sort of like why, why this is the way it is, you know, here and thinking about how for so many of my friends, my American friends here think 
a lot of them, the only nude bodies they've seen often outside of, you know, sex or outside of their own bodies is, are the bodies in glossy magazines that are Photoshopped or, you know, these days, Instagram influencers and bikinis, you know, and how it's sort of like, of course, if that's what we're comparing our bodies to, then it's teaching us that we need to be ashamed that we aren't enough, you know, but where I grew up with was all these women's bodies that were just normal and I found them beautiful and therefore I found my own body beautiful because it was just a real body, you know? Um, I'm sorry, I'm babbling on here, but I just wanted to say all this because I think a lot of your work's pointing to this. And if I remember correctly, reading that two girls bathing is about the cousin is in Ghana. If I, is that right? Yes. And the speakers in the States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Anyways, I just wanted to hear you speak about this because I think it's something that is a little tragic that we have this here, you know, in the States. Yeah. No, I appreciate um, you offering and you definitely don't have to apologize for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, it's also, you know, this, and this whole process of sharing the book is, so um, lovely because I'm learning alongside people. And I think there's a piece of this kind of aspect that you're bringing up around like the differences, the cultural differences um, in terms of specifically for this poem, my family and cousins in Ghana and then me being American and visiting them and just I think recognizing maybe kind of in the reverse of your experience, like, oh, well, I mean, like the last line is saying, like, when did I learn to feel this? I, I didn't even know that I felt this as a young person, as a preteen or teen, like just being like, there's a, another way that one could carry oneself in their nakedness that I hadn't ever witnessed, at least not knowingly it was startling. So it wasn't only just like kind of beautiful. It was kind of confusing. (laughs) Like I was like, wait a minute, how did I, what, you know, it's like when you're understanding that you've been taught something or you've been conditioned in some way and you realize it for the first time. Um, But I also think there's something that I've maybe I'm understanding listening to you. I think that is about, sex and about kind of the I would say quote-unquote dirtiness like the that there's some that's not just about how one is embodied and moving through the world as a naked body but also just about the things that have kind of clung on to what sex means in our Puritan (laughs) culture that are very different in other places and I think that are really destructive and it kind of, all those things are linked to like why someone would want to feel pressure to conform and contort themselves into one standard of what is quote unquote beautiful. And I also think being alone, like when I try to trace, how did I come to be more comfortable in my body? I think a lot of that was being alone, like moving in my twenties to an apartment on my own and like being able to walk around naked and like really like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, just exist in a way that I hadn't in my household with my brothers. And, you know, I feel like I had a lot of, um, 
I did a lot of covering up that I wasn't even really aware of. Mm-hmm. But growing up and kind of maturing and having the space to exist on my own, I think it was a big part of why I now feel more comfortable. And I think it's fascinating that you, that you said there's something around not covering up for yourself but for the other person that I think does speak to some other cultural roots <laughs> that are not just about nakedness but also about, like, yeah, about about sex totally and how I think I hear a lot about people that like or at least in the media they talk a lot about you know turning the lights off to make sure the other person doesn't see during sex mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. see the body and that's another way of sort of like oh using the body as a vehicle for pleasure but you can't really fully be in it because the other person can't see you mm-hmm. it's funny you know Amma, because I've sort of experienced this my whole life of like without not really realizing it, you know, um, but just lately in the last few years, I've been really fascinated by these sort of cultural differences and not solely with nakedness, but, you know, just been really investigating them more. And this is just one aspect of, of it that I'm like, oh, that's kind of sad that we have this here, you know, in the yeah. state and I'm just so moved by your poem and what you're speaking to. And I'm just curious, because you mentioned, you know, that experience with your cousin in Ghana. And did you feel like that opened something up inside of you that you carried with you after that? It's a great question. Um, I think it must have, because it's, it's something that stayed with me for so long. Um, and I mean, it was also, I think what's interesting about that moment and, and that moment that is also in the poem is like, it was a lot of instruction going on. And I think as a, as a writer, I wasn't foregrounding the cultural difference, but it's like, it's there yeah. and I'm happy to, to like elaborate on it. But you know, it's also, it was taking a bath like with bucket water, so yeah. taking a bath um, in this way that I didn't know how to do. So I was learning that. And I was also learning about, how my cousin carried herself and it was all those things happening in that moment yeah it was indelible it was certainly something that between that and I think being a dancer and feeling like I'm in my body in a way that has everything to do with that practice and um, discipline and craft that means that I consider the questions like you are like you're considering these questions of cultural difference and what you're carrying and what you want to let go of and why I mean that's kind of our work as artists to think critically and deeply about these things so I think that moment was like kind of a spark that kept uh staying lit and then I made this space so much so much years and years and years later to really like think more about it. And now I'm making more spaces like with you to keep considering, uh, which feels like a wonderful honor to be able to slow down and wonder yeah. <laughs> together. Yeah. That is the gift, isn't it, of art and, and sort of and thinking of these things more mm-hmm. deeply. And, and I, I just, as a footnote, I wanted to say how much I love that bathing, you know, is also sort of, um, you're sort of honoring the ritual of bathing in your, in some of this, these poems and how that's really sort of like a 
tenderness to the self and and how much I really appreciated that too because I, I feel that in my life mm, yes yeah. <laughs> I love I mean I love I love that Me too. like like really yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's one of the yeah. best things in life <laughs> yeah (laughs) it's so true it's so true and someone um pointed out recently that there isn't that uh I mean these bathing that's happening in the book is very it's in some way in some ways it's communal even if it's just one other person yeah um but yeah I will speak from my own my own love of a deep bathtub oh my gosh oh with like salt, salt yes. and, and, you know, like, um, oil <laughs> and yeah, the works like that's, there's nothing uh, like it. One of the most, yeah. One of the most amazing places to be in the world is in a tub. It's so true. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you mentioned just now about being a dancer and I was curious to ask you about because you're so much in your body when you're a dancer, obviously, but mm-hmm. also when you're writing poetry. And but what is what has being a dancer sort of taught you about your own body? That that's kind of a weird general question, but I'm just curious if you have anything to speak on that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to to say um, kind of fully because I've been dancing, or I'm not. I don't really dance now, but I was dancing for so much of my life uh, since I was, you know, like three or four. I think it's a part of my sensitivity. So where I am in space and where others are in space and like being aware of all of that feels like it's uh, informed or enhanced by my dance experience. Like I'm someone who is just very aware of what's going on in a room. Like I I really can't help it. I can't turn it off. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... And I think being in my body as a dancer and feeling like I know, like I, I have a sense of what's going on um, for myself, like where I feel comfortable or where I feel pain or what the sources of some of those things are. I just feel in tune. Um, and I feel like I'm able to, because of that, be attuned to other people. Um, yeah. And that's not like... I'm not saying that like a superpower or something. It's more like, I just think part of what that training did for me is to be able to be present in my body and that I, that I do that even if I'm not dancing, that I'm, yeah, carrying that forward. That's incredible. And it's so like, what a gift because it really can, it's like, it speaks to, that your poetry self too, it kind of, it seems like they blend together because of that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Thank you for bringing that back in. I mean, I think the poetry is another way to be embodied and another way to attune to others. I mean, especially like this is my chapbook came out in 2020. So it was in March, 2020. So it was, just when the pandemic was happening. So this is like the first time I've really been able to read from a work mm-hmm. um, is sharing poems from Blue Nude. And being on that side of it, I can like, I, am, I can see and I'm very moved by the way that people are listening 
So this is not about poetry as in the writing process or making the book, but the poetry that exists in a room with other people. Mm. It feels like this ritual that we need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Like we need spaces where we're actually like being um, quiet and listening. And, And it's, I can feel the room being kind of charged by that attention which I think of as love and it's it's beautiful I feel so um lucky to be a poet I just think Mm. there's something about poetry that makes the pause happen that we're talking about like that yeah and it feels we need that we need more of that and speaking of of you're talking about love that I was very very excited to talk to you about this about sort of the collection, your collection, touches on intimacies beyond the erotic and romantic, um, but through friendships, family art. And this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And you you wrote, I think it was in Lit Hub, I, I had a note that you said, women have been the truest, most beautiful givers of love in my life. My identities as daughter to my mother and sister friend to my friends have been the most consistently caring relationships I've known. Could you speak more to this? Because this is really important. We don't talk about it enough, about this non-romantic mm-hmm. love. And maybe it is romantic, but in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I do think there is a romance that is a part of it. Um, and I, I, do, I do think we have this impoverished <laughs> view and definition um, well, I don't know if it's fair to say we, but I think there's a mainstream cultural definition of love that is very obsessed <laughs> with yes. only one kind of love. Yes. And it is just an honest truth that when I look on my life, like it is the relationships with women that have been the givers of love. And I I just wonder what would be possible if we allowed ourselves to invent and live into different definitions. <laughs> I just think we have to figure out how to redefine our lives on our own terms. And for me, um, I think as a teenager, I was like super, you know, into the unrequited love mm-hmm. and like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I just a romantic in that sense. And, and I think as I've grown older, I've worked to realize and to allow and to kind of let in the reality, the actual fact of my life, which is, this is the love that I've experienced. And it's the love that I depend on. And that is a great romance. And the kinds of like, exchange consistency the sharing of dreams (laughs) the kind of like what what is that the buddhists call sympathetic joy like this ability to rejoice for one another Mm -hmm. it's also like totally antithetical to this idea of like the catty you know Mm -hmm. women that are like just like fighting with each other or uh, that i mean that's just not been my experience yeah yeah (laughs) that's just not been my experience yeah so just being able to kind of uplift what is true 
um, in my life. And I know that that's not true for everyone, but that's been my journey for sure. I have tears welling in my eyes because I just resonate so much with that, you know, and, and it's just so, so wonderful to hear someone else speak to that so beautifully. And sim- similarly, you know, um, there is a whisper of this in your, in your book and sp- more than a whisper in your poem, um, Labor, about, I think this also speaks to the expansiveness of love. You write about being mistaken, or you, the speaker, write about being mistaken for a mother in this poem. And, and you know, you just write about this beautifully, too, about, like, also, I think there's a presence, there is a very strong presence of love, you know, in there, but mm-hmm. it's a different version of it than, you know, mm-hmm. people like to put us into these little boxes and, and, and mm-hmm. um, I've, another thing I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, I've, and I, I'm just want to share this with you because I want to, I'm curious if it resonates is I'm, I'm both single and childless and I'm 40, nothing I feel ashamed of, but I feel like the whole world, maybe not the whole world, but at least this country, you know, is made me feel like I should be ashamed of those things and that I should do everything I can to quote unquote fix, fix that, you know? Mm. Um, and, and it's just something I've been very much thinking about deeply in my life. Um, especially the, the childless part more than the single part. But I was thinking this, this thing happened to me, um, or it's nothing unique that happened, but it's just something I've been, I was paying more attention to, which was, I was recently, I was spending extended, extended amount of time in Spain where I have family and I've been sort of back and forth between Spain and the U S those last two years. And, Outside of Barcelona, where I was staying with some cousins, there's the bakery that I go to every day. And then there's this coffee shop I go to every day. And I really got to know the people that work there. And, you know, the last day that I was there, when I was coming back to the States for a couple months, um, I first went to the bakery. And, you know, the woman, the baker, knew that it was my last day there for a while. And she was like, just telling everyone, oh, once is leaving, once is leaving. And then she, she like snuck me across the counter, some little mini croissants, like a bag full of them and said, this is for the plane. And, you know, we talked for a little while. It was such a tender thing. And then after that, mm-hmm. I went to my coffee shop I go to, and I had this long conversation with the barista who I had come to know and just very sweet and, and a kind person. And, and we were just talking all about Barcelona and the way it's changed and our childhoods, which were similar age and and I left, and for some reason, you know, I, I was feeling so much when I left. I felt very kind of sad that I was leaving these people. It felt sort of like a, a grief almost, um, mm-hmm. knowing that I would see them again, but that it would be some time. And I was thinking about how, well, you know, this is another way to have a lot of love in my life. And I was thinking, well, mm-hmm. if I if I did have a child, like I always thought I really wanted maybe that child would be, you know, tugging on my coat to leave. So I wouldn't have that long conversation with the barista. Um, Mm -hmm. Similarly, if I had a partner, you know, I wouldn't be as present. And I just thought, well, it's not that one thing's better than the other, but this is also a beautiful way to live, you know? So I just wanted to share that with you because it's been on my mind and and, and wanted to hear what you thought. Yeah, no, that feels like exactly well put. This is, it's another way to live. And it's funny, I, a few nights ago I had a reading and it was um, of many, many people that I really love and for many kind of paths of my life. And 
some of them are my former students who I call my kids. And so when I was um, on the stage and, and just saying I was feeling like very grateful and overwhelmed and I, and I looked at one of my students and former students and I was like, and my kids, and I started like crying. And then afterwards, people were like, I didn't see any kids. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it was so funny because I, I mean, I called them that and I, I didn't even cross my mind, you know, but to someone else, it sounded like there should be these like little um, children running around. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, but I have like, you know, I've nurtured people. I've cared in a specific way for young people who were, who were growing up. And, and I think like, just like, you know, the barista and just like the baker and just like, you know, when I was living in um, Rome, there was like a, this fruit and veggie vendor that I, that I just saw all the time. I saw him every day and sometimes I would stop and buy things and he was really friendly. And I think there, I, I, maybe that's just related to like the yellow tree again. Like, I think there are ways that we can look at our yes. lives yes. and see it be full. Yeah. And again, like that's not everyone's experience. Like I think there, there's a total crisis of like loneliness that is true for people. And there are a lot of people who don't have like a support system and, you know, but I think in my life, it's like, it's like pay attention to what is actually happening. Cause there's a narrative that could be in my mind. That's about, Oh, I don't have this or mm -hmm. I don't have that or you know, but then there's like, what is actually <laughs> before you? What is before you? Totally. You know? And there's so many, I'm so uh, grateful that you mentioned that about your kids, you know, <laughs> because mm -hmm. I think there's so many ways to mother, you know, and to, and to mm -hmm. nurture and to love. And, you know, I wrote this piece called it, where does the love go? Cause it was sort of all about my, I always thought for sure I would be a mom. And now at 40, that question is way more complicated about being a mother or not, you know, and it's a lot of it is circumstantial that I am not partnered and I would want to do it with a partner and just my life. And I, and I, I remember a couple of years ago on intuitive in Spain told me when you're in your early forties, you're going to have to decide whether or not to be a mom. And she paused and she said, it doesn't fit your lifestyle. And mm. it hit me. And I was like, it doesn't right now. It doesn't, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so it's way more complicated than just, you know, it's, it's not such a, it's nuanced, this question for me. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know whether or not I'll be a mom. I, you know, I probably won't give birth, you know, to, to a child, but I still think, well, I, I think I will be a mom in some way, whether it's the way you are describing, you know, or if it's like a, it's like a mother figure to other to children or to people or, you know, in little ways, you know, I think that's in me and it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be the conventional way. Right. And also like what I think like across gender, I mean, mothers are amazing. Like we should all be mothers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, and <laughs> totally. that means like, you know, that could just mean like being a gardener or, yes, yes, you know, what yes. is it that we are kind of pouring water and attention and care into and how do we do that in our lives? Like, I think that's part of, again, I guess that thing of like carrying the sorrow together. Yeah. Like that's a part of the journey is 
figuring out what we want to tend to. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I, you are, I mean, you are, I don't know you at all, but you're, you're tending to questions, you know, you're, you're tending to questions with attention and you're calling in other people to tend with you to some questions. And that feels like a beautiful nurturing. Mm, thank you for saying that. Oh, and likewise, <laughs> with your beautiful art that you do. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I was just going to kind of, you know, just go back to what we were saying about the romantic love. And I just mm-hmm. think that's the great tragedy is that it's so, you know, we just think about Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and how, you know, I remember... <laughs> going on the side note here, but I remember on Instagram there was somebody posted something on Mother's Day that was like, "Dog moms, this is not your day," and I, it made me really sad <laughs> because yeah. I just thought, "Why? Why are we telling people that they it has to? This is it has to be this one way?" You know. Similarly with Valentine's Day, all you see, you don't see anyone posting you know, my best friend, my love for my best friend, my love for my, mm-hmm. my animal or my love. It's all about, oh, my partner. I'm so glad I found this person. Yay for those people to celebrate that. But what about the rest of us that it doesn't mean that we love any less, you know? I feel very passionately about that. So. No, so, I, yeah. I, yeah, I agree with you. You, I mean, I'm not on social media, so you know more than, than me, but I, I theoretically know yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that this is like a very superficial kind of like, I mean, that there are, of course, true connections that can happen in any medium, but sure. the kind of display of, you know, what, what is a life um, yeah. is not, you know, it's just not trustworthy. No. Um, I think all of, all of all the things we're talking about are also work. Work, yeah. work, you know, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. it's, it's work to maintain relationships. It's a beautiful work, but it's not just, you know, oh, I found this person. That's yeah. not really, <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> that's not the end of the story. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. And yeah, I think that's amazing. You're not on social media. I, I'm telling you, I haven't been on it for only a short period of time and I feel so much happier and I'm like, oh, I need to listen to this, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm definitely questioning my my relationship with it. But um, I did want to talk, we're speaking about, kind of along these lines, about engaging, you know, ways of loving. And I think this book is such a testament to that in the way, and we talk, I want to talk specifically about acrostic poetry. So for those listening who don't know what, what aren't familiar with acrostic poetry, it's in essence, it's poetry that engages with visual art. And you're specifically working with the art of Black women artists in a variety of forms. And in, in your poems, we often see that the speaker is sort of in a dance with the subject or the artwork. And so I wanted to ask you about this collapsing between the speaker and the art subject in your poems, the way we sort of find pieces of ourselves and others, and how we might convey that on the page, and just anything you want to share about your process for working with the plastic poetry. Yeah, thank you. Um, I th- I think there's um, something to say about, you know, wh- I guess it's what that encounter with a piece of art yields inside of me. And, and maybe even, I guess the, 
it feels like it's um unbidden like something I can't really control in terms of looking at a piece of art and then feeling like I'm trying to use my life and myself to understand it or to to witness it and that feels like something that's just happening <laughs> like without yeah without without me and then I want to understand more I want to make space to consider or puzzle over and the poem gives me the space to do that you know it's about connection it's it's not like the thing that I think is very um ego driven human nature which is like this thing is about me Mm. this thing Mm -hmm. is about me Mm -hmm. it's more like it is about me because there is a human being who made it Mm -hmm. and there's some kind of stuff of us that is the same. Yeah. Um, Despite, you know, time and distance and whatever else, um, there's something in there that, you know, I guess it is whatever that was compelling the first person to make art. And I, I just saw this incredible exhibition at the Met that's called hear me now. And there are a lot of these, these pots really enormous, beautiful pots that were made by enslaved people. And one of the the most famous, mostly because we can kind of trace who this person is, is called David Drake or Dave, Dave the Potter. And he was enslaved and literate. And he made these pots um, as part of his um, enslavement. So there was not just like cotton fields and sugar plantations, but also like kind of an industry of making pots um, that was a part of slavery in the United States. And particularly this is like South Carolina. And he inscribed them with, with lines of poetry. Really? And they're, you know, from like the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. And just to see that impulse, like even in the conditions, whatever they were, of enslavement for this person to be able to be making and also to make poetry. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I just feel like there's something that is like, yeah, it's deeply human about that kind of impulse. And maybe also, you know, of the animal world, like these, the ways that, you know, animals make beautiful things in in the earth and in the world too. So I think if drastic for me is like connecting to that essence of, of being a creature and wanting to make <laughs> and maybe even wanting to make beauty. Um, and this is like a, it's like a conversation that I can have and somehow also revisit a question or a memory or a dream that mm-hmm. feels important to me. Yeah. Oh, love that. Just out of curiosity, with most of these poems that you wrote that are engaging with an artwork, um, was your process usually, like, did you um, experience that piece of art, whatever that was, whether it was an essay or a painting or a photograph, and then think, I want, okay, I want to write into this? Or was it sort of like you were writing and then it, I don't know, you know what I'm trying to ask? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. I think 
more of it. It's usually I'm kind of taken. <laughs> I'm taken by a piece of art, and I know I wanna, I wanna spend more time with it through writing a poem. I'm trying to think if there's an exception. There may be, but it's usually that way that it's like something is compelling me to study and to sit with and to kind of turn over. And in that, it's like a excavation of something in me that's very personal too. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And there was, <clears throat> now I'm forgetting which poem it was, but there was one where you were explicitly, um, I'm flipping through to see if I can find it. You'll, you'll probably know when I say it, was that you yeah. were explicitly sort of speaking to the making of, I think it was a photograph. Yeah, the Dana Lawson. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, who's an incredible photographer. Um, I wish I could have, she had a, a survey show recently in Atlanta. I wish I could have seen, but mm. um, that is posing nude. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah, I heard her speaking actually, Tracy K. Smith, the poet organized this black poetry conference at Princeton university a while back. And Dina Lawson presented and I've always loved her photographs, but it was really when she said that the couple in the photograph were not a couple. That was like the spark for me. I was like, uh, wait a minute. Yes. <laughs> and it just made me think like, oh, wow. What? Well, she asked this um, person. She often kind of encounters people like on the train or just in the world. She lives between New York and L.A. and will feel something kind of like unnameable about like an attraction to someone and then ask them to kind of sit for the a photograph. And so she met this, this person who she asked to sit in the photograph and she asked her, who would you feel comfortable posing nude with? And I thought, well, that's a really good question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I, yeah. And then I went to, to writing. Oh, I love that. I love this so much. Um, I just, you know, I'm thinking I think I might have told you already, but my great loves are really visual art and and writing and poetry. I'm not a poet myself, but I love it like nothing else. Um, mm. And I've been thinking a lot about sort of how I might combine my own images, my photography with my words. You inspire me so much to think beyond that. Like, And I think that's inspiring for many who maybe aren't visual artists themselves, but have a great love for it, you know, and mm -hmm. you can still very much engage the two. Yeah. And you're really showing us the way to do that well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I have two more questions that are, I usually ask everybody. And one of them is, is what is an act of kindness that you've received in your life that felt transformative or had an impact on you in some way? The first thing that came to mind probably because I, I've been thinking about this moment as I'm sharing this book. I have a friend, Araceli Skrimai, uh, who's a poet, an um, amazing poet. And we both taught together in a high school in the South Bronx. She's the first person who said Kaveh Kanem to me, which is like uh, a home for Black poetry, a, a fellowship of Black poets that has transformed mm. the American poetic landscape and that was really the first place that I felt I could share my work before that I was just a private well I was first just like a teenager writing poems you know and and maybe sharing them with my family or with my teacher 
but then I kept writing, but it was just my, it was for myself. And when she talked about this community of black writers, I was like, I think I want to share, you know, I, I want to learn in community. I want to learn alongside people. And it was such a transformational series of, of events and moments and spaces in my life, like continuing on to this day. It really was one of the kind of beginnings of me being a writer. And it was her, I mean, I wasn't a good poet. I can't point, imagine I, that. <laughs> it's true. And I, I think of it, I think of it as a kindness that she wanted to share this thing that she had experienced as powerful and, and life-changing with me and that she told me about it. Yeah, it really changed everything. Wow, that's so beautiful. You know, I was thinking too about, I think I remember reading or hearing you say about your writing process and it really spoke to me as well because I think back to the social media thing, I think we're so conditioned now to just try to like get everything out quickly, you know? And I think I remember you saying that your process is pretty slow or slow, you slow down with it and that you're not someone who necessarily writes every day, that you have to sort of have the space to go inward, um, which I really related to. And yeah, I don't know if you want to say anything more about that. Yeah, it's, it's very true. Someone just asked me like, you know, are you writing while you're, you know, like reading from your book? And I'm like, it is, I'm a one <laughs> one yes, thing yes, at a time yes. kind of person totally. <laughs> I'm like I am happy to share I'm happy to interview I'm happy to read yeah. I am not also like writing furiously <laughs> yeah. that is just not um, how I'm built but I also think it relates to kindness because this again I think is something that maybe isn't shared publicly a lot but if you when I think back on the the kindness that this is also people who are now no longer living people like Constance Saltonstall, who, you know, this woman who like died really young and knew she was dying. So had cancer and knew she was dying and decided to set up her house in Ithaca, New York as like a retreat for artists. Like that's, that's a kindness. You know, there, all the spaces that I go to are built on a kindness, right? Like to make a space for artists to be supported because we don't, necessarily get that support yeah. from our government no. right like right. these are all just like people who decided to make space for something that they actually believe is essential mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that is like that it, that it is nourishing as as food and so so many spaces that I've been in are kind of foundationally built on the generosity and kind of savvy and organization and kindness of of people I don't know of people I haven't yeah. met. Yeah. Back to the, the love piece. <laughs> yeah, the love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the theme of this conversation, which is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, lastly, I, I like to ask, um, you know, to share a piece of art that has been really important to you. And I mean, it feels like a silly question to ask an artist because there's so many, you know, but I just, mm-hmm. I guess more it's like mm-hmm. just an offering, like, you know, of, of something mm. that means a lot to you that, that, that other, you want other people to know about. Mm-hmm. Well, I would definitely bring, bring Roske back into the conversation because I think inciting joy is 
it's such a building on his books of poetry and the book of delights, his book of essays. It is such an elaboration in a way that I was surprised by, which says a lot. I wrote to him and, and I was just like, I was, I'm, I, I was like startled by how surprised I was that it was so much. It's very generous. It's very, it's so much an offering in terms of like thinking about mental health and masculinity. Yes, yes. Um, Thinking about like, you know, what is the story of the grief of losing his father? Mm -hmm. I just think it's an extraordinary book and not only, you know, I mean, I know there's like throngs of people who consider Rasuke a gift to the world, but I think there's something hmm, quite serious about what he's giving. And I guess about, about the discipline of joy, as he would say. Yes. That is really, um, it's new. It's new and it's like, it's new for for him to give, you know, like, and I think if once you kind of fall in love with artists and like kind of read everything that they've written, you can kind of see how things are, are building on one another. And I just think this is like exquisite. So yes, I would say, please everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Grab the text and, you know, spend time with it. I think it's, um, totally echo that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so and the inciting part, like there's also just a political charge to the writing that maybe it's not going to be the soundbite that, you know, you may hear about the book. But I think it's like really about being free and yeah. he's giving a lot of thought and consideration to to questions that are compelling to me. Thank you. Yes, I as well would recommend that book because. It's just incredible. And I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while, what you just said about sort of the attention we give to those artists that we fall in love with and how we stay, you know, we see and stay with them over the years of their work and see them grow and we grow with them maybe, you know, and that's really, a, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Thank you. It is. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the love that we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. You're, I mean, you fall in love with, with artists and then you get to kind of continue that relationship for as long as they continue to make art. Yeah. And even when they've passed like Toni Morrison, for example, like you still have, you still have her work, you know, you can still, you can still have a communion with that person, even though they're not, they're not living on the planet anymore. Absolutely. Cause then you can go back to their work and Mm -hmm. even if you you have changed, you know, and how we come back and read something differently, you know, 10 years from now. Yeah, it's such a gift. And speaking of gifts, you are such a gift. Thank you so much <laughs> for this this conversation. I, I will cherish it for a long time. And I hope it's the first of many conversations we might have. <laughs> oh, I mean, yes. I like I said at the beginning, it is it is a gift to me to be able to just spend time with someone who spent time with the work and I feel touched that you were touched and I don't want to ever take for granted the feelings that I'm feeling. So thank you. This episode was audio produced by Katie McMurrin. The music is by Madison Ward. <laughs>